I am Emily Lyons. In 2011, without a high school degree and with no money to my name, I decided to start my own business. Since then, I've built several multi-million dollar companies and I don't plan on stopping. Being a businesswoman, CEO, serial entrepreneur, survivor, and general life enthusiast, I'm endlessly jazzed by the business of life, especially the stories of extraordinary people I've had the privilege to meet along my own improbable journey to success. I don't think it's fair to keep that privilege to myself, and I think you deserve to be utterly lifted and shifted by these people too. All inspiring people are inspired people, so get ready to be inspired. Michael Hyatt was born a fighter. As a child, he fought a terminal illness and wasn't expected to survive. But survive he did, and beyond surviving, he thrived. By age 25, Michael became a self-made millionaire by building two highly successful tech firms that he sold for $500 million. Today, Michael ranks as one of Canada's top entrepreneurs and is a mentor and investor in several startups. The path to success is never linear. It requires overcoming adversities, and that is just what he did. We talk about his journey and what happens next after you exit. When is enough enough? This is a fantastic talk and some great insights, and I hope you enjoy it. Michael, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me. So I have come across you a few times over the years, but for those who might not know who you are, will you give us a bit of your backstory on who you are and what you do? Well, I mainly spend my time investing now. I built a couple of software companies that were pretty successful, and uh, my brother and I did that together, and we sold those. So now we spend time investing in other companies and entrepreneurs mm -hmm. and in private equity deals, venture capital deals, real estate deals, public markets. And you know, we spend our time in a lot of interesting other programs like the Creative Destruction Lab at U of T. We also have a family foundation where we do a lot of very interesting medical research at places like Sick Kids. So we get around. We do investing <laughs> and we run a family office and a family foundation. Mm -hmm. So I know you and your brother have been in business for over 30 years together, which is just wild. So take me back to the beginning. How did this all start? Well, I'm sure it's 30 years. It's probably like 20 years. But I mean, if you count the fact that we started as really young kids, I think we started by, you know, I think he was copying video games. and uh, <laughs> I, I would go that. around the playground and I was trying to sell them or something for five mm -hmm. bucks or three bucks. And I sold a few floppy disks back a long time ago. <laughs> but listen, I, I, I went to Western and I went to Western for science because I had this idea that I wanted to be a doctor and I graduated. And huh. when I graduated, there were no jobs. It was a terrible market. The internet had just kind of started and we still didn't understand really what the hell it was. And my brother had written some software and I became the salesperson because I was, uh, well, the only person. And uh, we just started selling software. We would literally sell software on diskette and we'd go to the post office, mail the diskettes and wow. actually try to sell the software. And we'd wait three days and call the person up in Texas and said, did you get it? Did it come in the mail? And if it did, we'd have to <laughs> coax them into installing it into their PC to try our demo. So imagine that. And now what I tell <laughs> students today, I went to Western with no internet and I also coax people into inserting disks in their computer. They don't believe me, but hmm. it's true. That was the truth. Yes, that was how it started. Hmm. And how did your brother know how to do this? My brother, completely different from me, technology and computers spoke to him at a young age. He was just, mm -hmm. he was a brilliant programmer before he could program. It was just kind of very strange. He was just genetically... Is, I don't know, superior for coding. And he was just such a brilliant programmer. And if, if you take my brother and you say, go code something, he's worth like 
20 coders at one time or wow. engineers. And it's like, so like the trick to building companies was the fact that I had a brother who was extremely talented in making software and I could sell. So we kind of together amalgamated to this one human being that could actually sell. And hey, the fact that in the past 20 years, it's been the most awesome time in human history to build a tech company hasn't been a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's for sure. We've got uh, everything at our fingertips. That's right. So, and then you exited that first company. Yeah, we sold our first company. And at the same time, we had another company cooking, Blue Cat. We sold our first company to item to a large public company. And then we mm-hmm. sold Blue Cat in 2017 to Madison Dearborn. And actually, we remain large shareholders of Blue Cat. So we're actually going to sell Blue Cat one more time. That's kind of be the funny thing. But uh, we spent our time in the past years, though, investing in a lot of companies. I mean, we probably have invested in about, oh, probably 50 companies. Hmm. So we're pretty active in the ecosystem. So your companies were predominantly self-funded. Is that correct? Initially, yeah. And then we did take capital on. We've taken different types of capital. We mm-hmm. took it from either a fund or we took it from a you know, venture capitalist or, you know, but uh, yeah, we definitely, you know, capital builds business. At some point, if you want to get big, you need to take on money to mm-hmm. scale. And certainly today, you're going to probably have to take on money because things are a lot more expensive. It's a lot cheaper to start and build a company, but, you know, engineers are more expensive and getting it to market's more expensive. So, you know, raising capital now is a much more natural thing, an easier thing because. There is so much more money available now than there used to be. And it's Mm -hmm. so much cheaper because interest rates are so low and interest rates, the price of money and the price of money is very cheap. And there's a lot of money sloshing around looking for great ideas. And it's never been a better time than literally today to raise money and start a company because there is every opportunity available to you to build a fantastic company today. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. So actually, I was listening to one of your talks recently, and in it, you were saying that you were terminally ill as a child. And I grew up with two terminally ill siblings. They both had cystic fibrosis. So I was very much immersed in that medical world as a child. What was going on with you? So I was born in the 70s, and although I looked like I was born in the 90s, uh, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I was born in the 70s, and you know, technology wasn't there as much, and I had a failed kidney, and I had a damaged solitary kidney, and then oh, wow. I had a lot of other, like a whole plethora of other disorders and issues uh, urologically, and back then, it wasn't for sure that your child would make it. And they told my parents that this is really iffy, this is really bad. And, you know, up to the age of 10, I spent most of my life in and out of hospitals. So I got to know sick kids extremely well. You know, Mm -hmm. it's funny today that I'm funding research at sick kids because I really believe in the organization. But I spent a lot of time there. And it, you know, it's very strange being a very sick child. And you'll know this as being a sibling and your siblings could attest. And is that you're a person out of time when children are very sick you grow up very quickly and Mm -hmm. suddenly you're seven years old and you're speaking like an adult, but you're still seven and you're out of time and people, you don't necessarily get along with other kids as well. And you're not all the same as everybody else because you've had to deal with these horrendous things. So it's been a, it was a huge challenge and it kind of helped shape who I was today, but it was a most meaningful thing. Most, the biggest thing that ever happened to me for sure. Hmm. What changed that you were able to survive? Well, it was just pure raw ambition that maybe I was genetically pre-programmed to just Mm. be really ambitious to survive. And Mm. this, whatever medical technology at the time, I was very fortunate to have a few brilliant surgeons that were able to pull off some risky surgeries back then, which now are just, you know, if I were to do these things, they're like, you know, 
same day surgeries, but in 1977 or 79 or 80, 81, it wasn't like that. And things weren't so sure. And, you know, and it's an incredible thing. You know, medical technology along with computing is just getting incredible. So you definitely want to be born in the future, not now. Oh, yeah, I know. Our life expectancy is going to be (laughs) crazy. That's right. But even like, so my siblings were both born with cystic fibrosis, as I mentioned. And when my sister was born in 83, it was the life expectancy was something like six years old. That's right. And now, most recently, they've come out with this CFTR modulator. It's this new medication, and it basically takes this disease from a terminal disease to a manageable condition. Isn't that incredible? It's wild. But I mean, unfortunately, my sister passed away in 2011. She's had two double lung transplants. And so I was the middle. And then I have a younger brother and he's still fighting. So we're still trying to get access to it in Canada. It's the patients in the States and all over the world has it. But Canada's very much behind in that regards. But it's wild. It's just... It is wild. And we are so fortunate to be living in this time and it gets better and better and better. And why is that? That's because of what we're experiencing every day. And sometimes we don't realize how fast computing is going. But in every part of our lives, computing is getting doubly as powerful and half the price every 18 months. And that's kind of Moore's law. And since computing is getting so much powerful and doubling so quickly, it's essentially moving exponentially. It will go through everything about us in our lives, everything from medicine to finance, everything we can imagine. And that's why you see the term AI pushed everywhere, which is really another term for a prediction machine. And that's why Everything you're seeing, whether it's a chatbot, whether it's finance, whether it's health, we're predicting the outcome and we're getting incredibly accurate. Even self-driving cars are really based on what would a human driver do next? They're just incredible Mm. prediction machines and we're getting there. I mean, becoming a radiologist today doesn't mean as much as it would ever be in the past because computers can predict what that chart says way better and faster, maybe a billion times faster than a human. And these tools are so important for us because it's like, you know, what did we do without Excel for spreadsheets for accountants? You know, it was much harder. You know, like how do we heat foods before a microwave? And it was just much harder. But as technology rolls into our lives, the world gets easier, the world gets better, and it elevates everything in our life. So you're going to consistently see that in just about everything you're doing. And it's an amazing being in, let's say, Toronto right now, just watching the ecosystem of tech. You know, Mm -hmm. everybody's starting companies and some make it, some don't, but it's incredible the things that people are coming up with and quantum computing, artificial intelligence and healthcare, you know, you can really see Toronto turning uh, into uh, something quite special. Mm-hmm. With how the landscape is changing so much, how does someone future-proof their business? I think the way you future-proof your business is that you accept change. So mm-hmm. my question for many people, so if you go up to a company that's been around for 20 or 30 or 40 years, and your answer is, well, that's the way we've always done something, I think you're relatively in trouble. The companies that make the jump are the ones that try new things and get ahead. I mean, for example, people criticize IBM all the time, hmm. but IBM is an incredibly successful company. Why is that? Because they've been around 110 years. Just imagine the wow. jumps that company has made. There was a time when they had to say, you know, all the money we're making on the typewriter, all our money is coming in from a typewriter, all of it. We're going to have to stop that to try this new thing called a computer. And they Mm -hmm. made that jump. And companies that know how to make that jump are tremendously successful if you can get through that time. I mean, you take a look at a company like Microsoft, whether people realize it or not, 
they had to cannibalize everything they sold to that desktop license CD-ROM, that product, that Windows, to sell this cloud-based software. They literally had to cannibalize their cash cow. It's kind of like trying to change the engine of a Boeing aircraft in the air at the same time, (laughs) right? So great companies know how to accept change and try new things, fail, but move forward. So there's not a way to future-proof yourself except that you try new things. Like, for example, if you're in a media or a marketing business or whatever, are you using new tools that could get you ahead? Are you using a prediction machine somehow? Are you using technology that helps you make better decisions? Because your competitors or one or two of them are, and those are the ones that are going to win. Can you Mm -hmm. imagine being the first accounting firm to really accept Excel spreadsheets and really start using them? Think about how much faster you would be versus pen and paper or rudimentary products that weren't using the computer at that time. Mm -hmm. Just think about the jump, right? So that's, how you future-proof yourself. You try new things and you accept change and you stop being static. You know, I see so many people when I cross the country and I give keynotes that are like, well, this is just the way we've done things and we've been really successful. And one of the problems about being really successful is that you say, hey, Michael, there's no problem here. Look how great our profits are this quarter. And I'm like, but revenue is a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator, right? And I mean, there was a time when BlackBerry's revenue got to 24 billion, right? It's a lagging indicator. What's your revenue this quarter is? It's about what you did nine months ago. Going forward, it doesn't have much to do with it, right? So you can really get ahead by trying new things, accepting new technology, and understanding that what's coming isn't what's got you here. Mm-hmm. Trying these things and being willing to fail and go through these different... Right. You know, which is it's so important, you know. The, I think the true secret to success is the ability to embrace you know, these adversities and these failures as a chance to learn and improve and grow. Right. So something that you had mentioned in an interview that you had done was a lot of the struggles and challenges that you went through with, you know, Blue Cat having bad software releases and customer and employee issues and a short-lived patent infringement lawsuit. And I, I thought that this was so, so important you know, because we don't like to talk about these, especially with social media these days. It's all just this beautiful highlight reel when all of us as business owners, we go through these hard times and, Mm -hmm. you know, we all face them. The path is not linear. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I just wanted to, to talk about that. What are some of these things that you had to go through? Oh, like so much. You named a few, but look, the best things I ever did in business was hire a great person. And the worst things I ever did was hire the wrong person. Mm. Hey, at the end of the day, if I just summed it up, it all came down to great people make great companies. It was never anything more than that. It was just that simple. I wish I could say it was this, it was that, here's the secret recipe. And the second thing was, was that I just showed up every single day. I just kept showing up. And no matter what, I was relentless about showing up. I outworked everybody. I'm not sure I was ever nearly the smartest, but brightest or best this or best that. I just outworked everybody else. I showed up. There was a perseverance. And I think that drove all the way back to my medical issues. And I think Hmm. the second thing is, is that I just, you know, I never knew when there was going to be light at the end of the tunnel, what would happen. I mean, I remember a time and it's hard because it's been 10 years now, but let's take a time when it was really bad. I remember waking up in September, October of 2008, when the markets had crashed and Lehman Brothers went under. And I remember being in my apartment, turning on the TV, the Today Show, watching people packing their stuff out of Lehman and actually being frightened for the very first time when I realized after about five days that 
literally the bank machines could literally run out of money. We were, people don't understand without $2 trillion being pumped into the market from the Fed in the US, every bank was essentially under. And all our clients were under as well, in a way. And we were very, very close to a depression without a tremendous amount of support. So it was the scariest time. I remember our revenues were still increasing, but our value of our company was going down because every asset was going down. It was the scariest time. That year, that six months when nobody knew what was going to happen, it was a transition to a new president, Obama was just coming in. It was very difficult to be in business and know if you're going to make it. Now, everybody looks back and says, yeah, yeah, I do. And look how well everything picked up. Well, you didn't know that then. Mm-hmm. right? It wasn't sure if General Electric was going under. Like, it was amazing. These iconic companies were all in trouble. All the car companies were in trouble. Like, and I remember, you know, just, you know, getting the company together. You know, we had to make cuts. They were really hard. We had to, like, bunker down. We weren't sure we are going to get purchase orders, oh, you know. Geez. And, you know, we had a hundred and something employees at the time, and we weren't that small. And it was uh, a difficult time. But you go through these times and you don't forget them. Mm-hmm. But leadership is what do you do in those times? I always find it's easy to take high fives. It's easy to take victory laps. But leaders are built, I think, in these really dark, difficult times, you know, where, you know, you just don't know what to do. And you're kind of like just scared. You're like, oh, God, like what is going to happen here? And there's some, been some really tough times. I think that I tell people building a company is not for everybody. I think it's a very rare thing that people can build and sustain a company. I think most people shouldn't start companies. I think it's a very lonely, dark, and long experience. I mean, I think you're right. <laughs> yes. I think we glamorize it. I think that, mm-hmm. I, you know, I remember being a CEO at 26 years old, and I would walk out to the picnic table outside with the employees, and suddenly you'd become the cooler, right? No one would say anything. Because you're the CEO. But I was 26. I just wanted friends, you know? Mm-hmm. I wanted to go hang out, but you're the CEO. And you know what I mean? So everything would just... You wanted to have a life at the same time that you were, it was difficult. Being a CEO is an intensely lonely experience. And that's why there's organizations that put CEOs together because no one understands it like them. And people give up marriages and and relationships and everything, you know, and then you're exactly right. We get on stage and we talk about the CEO is all successful, but we don't actually mention what the battle scars have been. I mean, truly the sacrifice is enormous. And so, you know, when I sold Blue Cat, finally... And we had to set up this office and my brother and I had amassed this pretty considerable wealth and all the rest of it. I sat back and I asked myself a question, was it worth it? Hmm. Right? You know, I sacrificed a lot. By the time I sold Blue Cat, I hadn't, you know, had a child yet, you know, and I sacrificed a lot in relationships and it wasn't there. And I was, you know, uh, in my early forties and, and I was just like, what did I just do? Like, hmm. was that all worth it? Like, okay, fine. I can now do anything I want, I guess. But what did I just put myself through? Was it worth, I think it was, but I'm not entirely sure. Hmm. And so I'm not sure I would ever sit back and say, you know, success is doing this. And that. I think success is like one of the, the game trivial pursuit where you have little pieces of the pie and success money is a couple of those pieces, but certainly not all eight of them or whatever. I think it's part of it. And I find the victory a little bit hollow because I sacrificed so much to get up to that mountaintop. And I just, I'm not entirely sure why I did it. And it, you know, it's been tremendously rewarding, but you know, I see a lot of people trying to scale these mountains. And I think the other addiction is, is that we say, you know, when I scale this mountain, I'm going to slow down. And then you get to the top and then you want to get to the next one and yes. you keep going. <laughs> it's like, well, when I get to like 25 employees, I'm going to slow down. When I get to a hundred, when I get to 500 and then you're just on this train, you know? And then after I sold the companies, all I ever heard from people is, what are you doing now? What are you doing now? How busy are you? And I'm like, 
actually, I'm going to take a little time off. And they'd look at me like I have three horns in my head. <laughs> They're like, well, what do you mean you're taking time off? How dare you? Get going. Because what do you do? You meet somebody. And then the star in our refrigerator is, I'm busy. Like, you know, what are you up to, Emily? Well, I'm busy. Okay, good. Everybody has to be busy, right? We all have to just wrap <laughs> ourselves up in all these meetings and we're really busy. Really? Is that what we should be doing? Like, is that how we're supposed to live our life? Just like busy, right? And like, what are we really doing? <laughs> I don't know. I got a little more philosophical about it because I realized that all of us in this community get together and try to outbusy each other. And I'm not yes, sure why we're doing true. it. And I think it's a level of anxiety. I think that you, me, and every other founder suffers from anxiety disorders called get yourself busy and look busy. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you ever see that t-shirt that says Jesus is coming, look busy. I mean, <laughs> yes. I, I, just, I just feel like we're all waiting for something to come and look busy. You know, whenever because, I'm not busy, I start to get anxious. I'm wasting time. I should be working. Yeah. Yeah. Pick up that phone. Don't put it away. You're on vacation. Answer 45 emails a day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the world is mm -hmm. going to stop if you don't answer those emails, if you don't talk to this, if you don't do that. And I have found it way harder to stop than it is to start. <laughs> and I have tried to practice this past, listed past four months or so, trying to slow down. I'm trying to say no to stuff. And that's been really hard because we're addicted to doing things and adding to our resumes and making our LinkedIn look better. So I think it's, I don't know how you land the plane. You know, that's one of the challenges I have right now. I'm trying to do less. So I'm turning down things all the time and I'm trying to decide what really counts and what matters to me. And what am I going to do now? I'm, I'm pretty young and in one way I'm retired. It's like, okay, what am I going to do? Like what makes sense? And so then you ask a question, well, what's valuable to you? What do you like to do? And, and actually I'm not even sure. And that's not even a good answer. Right. Mm -hmm. So I decided to take up baking at home. So I'm learning everything I can. <laughs> Wonderful. About baking. I'm making some badass scones right now. So I gotta tell you, I'm really getting good. <laughs> wow. But, um, yeah. So baking's my new thing. And that's this past week, but we'll see how that goes. But, but like, I'm trying to just send the message out that I just want everybody to sit back and go like, why do we have this huge anxiety to just be over the top busy all the time? And, and just be anxious. And for what, you know, mm -hmm. it's a Why? really tough cycle. Like I admire you for running the agency you do. I mean, it's hard and you're on a treadmill and it's really hard to do it. And I don't think people understand how hard it is to coordinate so many people and this and that and keep it going for all these years. And actually I start to get anxiety when I think about doing it again, maybe I'll do it again, mm -hmm. but right now I just don't see it. There was an interesting question somebody asked me recently, and it was if uh, I had a child and they wanted to be an entrepreneur, would I want them to become one? Mm -hmm. I initially, you know, when I first started my business, I say, oh, absolutely, I'm going to push my child to become an entrepreneur and have their own business. But now I don't think I would. <laughs> I'm like, enjoy your life. <laughs> well, I, I'd like to, you know, push my child to do whatever they want. But I mean, I think they have to understand those consequences. But you know, this is a, you know, it's funny though, if you're a lawyer, you don't want your kids to be a lawyer. If you're an actor, you don't want it's your kids true. to be an actor. So I don't know, I think being an entrepreneur is pretty versatile, but I think they have to live with their consequences and what they decide. But all I'm saying is that there seems to be so much pressure in our ecosystem just to be it's just like a lot of anxiety to achieve. And I'm not sure what we're all really waiting for or trying to achieve. Maybe I'm the only one who's thinking this way, but I really feel that we add a lot of undue pressure on each other and on the system. And I'm not entirely sure that there's just some other things that are also pretty important. So, you know, mm -hmm. don't be afraid to round your life out a bit. 
I know one of the things my mom always says is Emily's married to her businesses. <laughs> that's not a good thing. Right? I know. And, I mean, that's the thing though. I mean, a guy turned to me and said recently, and then the elevator door was closing. So it kind of really stuck with me. He said, you know, you give away all your money, whether you like it or not, which is basically when you die, whether you like it or not, your all your money goes, you know, yes. you know like pharaohs and kings, all these, we tried to kill their armies and bring them with them to the afterlife and bring their cat with them to the afterlife. Okay. There's no VIP lineup for us in heaven. God doesn't say, I don't think he ever says, well, oh, thanks for coming, Michael. You get to go under this red rope here. Mm -hmm. I don't believe any of that. So I think what happens is that we are probably ascribing too much value to this, right? And I'm the same guy I was before. I, you know, I, I still shop at Winners for my underwear and Costco and <laughs> I still do. I do. I do. I cook my food because I like to and I'm still the same guy. I don't buy peanut butter unless it's on sale because who's going to pay eight bucks for a jar? It just drives me crazy. <laughs> like seriously. And then when, you know, and that's the great thing I love about shopping for food in America. It's like everything's two for one. I'm like, oh my God, two for one. So I always come home with like nine boxes or eight, you know, 10 boxes of pasta. I'm like, ooh, look at this pasta. I have too much pasta in my pantry now. But I think that, you know, I'm just questioning that you'd be surprised how meaningless getting over a certain amount of wealth can get. So I, mm -hmm. I'm not sure it actually means as much as we think it does. We think it's important, but I don't think it is. One of the companies that I own is a luxury matchmaking agency. And I started it. Yeah. It seems funny, but back in uh, 2014, I was living at the Ritz-Carlton and I had my business and I would have different events there. And there was so many CEOs that I would meet and I would introduce them just to different people that I knew because I knew so many great people. And they were getting married and people would say, how did you meet? And they would say, oh, talk to Emily. She knows everyone. So I'd be getting <laughs> random emails from people. So anyways, I was in New York at one point and I came across this agency that was, you know, an elite matchmaking agency and they really focused on working with CEOs. And the more I looked into it, I was like, you know what, if I'm going to do it anyways, I might as well make a business out of it. So I built it. I trained my matchmakers, but it's pretty much all CEOs that are incredibly successful but now they've gotten to a point and it's like, okay, now what? And they're all in sort of like this panic of what do I do? And I always tell them, you know, being successful and having money is great. But ultimately, if you have no one to share it with, it can just kind of seem pointless. You know? Well, what I agree. And I wasn't sure I was going to have kids until someone said to me, you know, I always wanted to have kids, but said to me, you know, you live on through your children. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I'm a live on through my parents. And I just had a daughter four months ago. Congratulations. And thank you. It's a very magical experience. And having a daughter, I know, would be, you know a son would be good too, but it was very magical for me. And I think that we live on through our kids. And you think about all the things you can pass on. And it is very meaningful, for sure. But I think building companies can kind of steer you in the direction that you will pray to the money God for a little too long. That's for mm -hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. And it's something I don't think that past generations have seen so many people in this position where, you know, they're at this point, yeah, where it's like, okay, now what? <laughs> well, you know, it's a thing where if you're self-aware, I think you get to the point where you realize that you can slow down a bit. I had to make a decision whether I was going to start another company and try to do this even bigger, but hmm. I found it kind of pointless because I wanted to try some other things in my life, you know, so I, I'm actually taking a little bit of time off to actually spend time with my daughter, which is really important because mm -hmm. I'll never, ever see her at this young, young age again. And right now, every two days, they change. So yes. you never see it. And the one thing I get as an older dad is I get to like, money has afforded me this luxury of changing 14 diapers a day and uh, <laughs> getting puked on 27 times a day. But, you know, giggling in the swimming pool. With them. And I think that that's what it's bought me. It's bought me time. 
It's bought mm. me time to do something like this that I've always wanted to do. And I think that's what you can use it for. You know, it'd be interesting because I bet you find a lot of similarities with the CEOs that you meet. They probably say the same kind of things, right? Mm-hmm. They do. Mm-hmm. There, you go. there you go. Absolutely. Would you say there's anything missing in your life at this point? I would say no. After I had a child, no. Yeah, I would say what's missing is interestingly that I should say that trying to figure out, you know, what my broader purpose is now is something mm-hmm. that I'm kind of going down that journey because I'm not really sure here I'm back into my anxiety and my crap, which is what's next. Because mm-hmm. I feel like I've got to go do something, right? Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, sometimes I wake up completely unhappy because I'm like, oh my God, I got to be doing something. Why am I unproductive? Why am I not out there doing a deal? So it's funny because I have a family office and I have someone investing my money full time. I have a lawyer and I have a chief financial officer. I have a chief investment officer full time investing. So what keeps me going is the fact they bring up these great deals and I get to invest in them, right? So it feels like I'm in the game still. (laughs) But besides that, like I need that, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's funny because I'm now, you know, I'm investing in more deals because it gives me a little, it makes me feel like I'm busy. (laughs) So it makes me feel like I'm doing something. (laughs) Uh So I feel like I'm useful. But, you know, listen, yeah, it's a very strange predicament, right? But I would say that I wish I could tell, like, it's weird when you go to a cocktail party, you say, well, I'm I'm Emily and this is what I do. And it's very, you're very descriptive of what you do when you have these two companies. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I don't. I have five, but yeah. It's so what funny. do I do? Like, how do I describe myself, right? It's, this is Michael. He's, uh, I don't know. Yes. What, do you, what do you do, Michael? I don't Isn't know. Isn't that funny that, that our jobs define who we are? And that's... Define. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's like who you're with, what you do, you know, mm-hmm. and like, and then, you know, and like you're defined by that, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel very awkward at cocktail parties. You would probably think I'm unemployed and probably <laughs> very true. And you're like, oh, I'm not going to drink with this dude. I got a lot of strange looks for a while. I always People would ask me what I do and I would be like, and I remember going, I, I would stumble and they would look at me like, oh God, this guy's a winner. Oh my God. You know, I don't know what to say. So I don't want to say like, oh, I sold my companies. I don't say that. I just say, well, I kind of invest money. I just, I don't know what, and then I sound like a banker. And when you go worse. to a business event, yeah, it's the first question everybody asks you. So what are you doing? It's, they size you up as if you're worth yeah. talking to or not. Oh, that's right. And it's really funny that way. And I wanted to come up with a descriptor. Now I just say I run a family office or something. It sounds really kind of romantic. But, you know, I'm more proud of the stuff I'm doing with the foundation that we started, which is we invest in different medical research and different water projects and women events and stuff like that. It's gone really, really well. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm backing some very interesting research at SickKids to try to make some uh, genetic breakthroughs, which I'm very excited about. We actually Mm -hmm. made a breakthrough at Mount Sinai, which I was very proud of, and something called uh, preeclampsia, which is high blood pressure in women. We did really well there. And so like we take on projects and we feel like we're moving the football. Mm -hmm. And I do these water projects in India where I actually put these concrete water bunkers onto the farms and it collects water. And I force the families to send their girls. They have to have two daughters. I send them to school and I pay for it. But I put a water bunker in there so it collects rainwater so that they don't send their daughters to go get water all day. Because that's all the daughters do is just collect water all day, five months. So every year I do about 20 families on these concrete bunkers and their deal is they have to put their kids in school and I buy them bikes and stuff. And I feel like I'm doing something, right? See, that's that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But when I get a picture- You're changing lives. Yeah. I get these pictures of these girls and they're smiling. They're on their bikes. I'm like, you don't know me, but I'm just like so happy to see this picture. It's like the best thing I get every couple of quarters. I get these girls and they're smiling because they're 
backpacks and their books. I'm like, this is so great, you know, because if we educate these girls, it's likely they'll educate their children, right? It's a much bigger effect than boys in there, in that culture right there. So those kind of things are become much more meaningful for me now. We run um event now every year. We take it's coming up and I'll tell you, like we take women that are over the age of 45, generally women of color in the lower socioeconomic class have a very hard time getting a job and we run a job fair for them and we invite all these employers and then it's with Dresser Success, which is a phenomenal charity in Toronto that dresses the women and, and stuff. So we run a big job fair and it's very successful. A lot of people get jobs out of it. Wow. So we try to do things where, yeah, so we fund it, we're the key sponsors. So we do things where we really get like an effect I've done really weird things where people write to me across the country and I've fixed their medical issues and stuff and just weird things. Oh my gosh. Like I get these random letters (laughs) saying, I saw you on TV. Can you help me with this? And I'm like, sure. (laughs) Like, why not? What I'm trying to say is that I have found more meaning in that broad giving than I ever have in anything else. Hmm. You know? And those are the type of things that will be your legacy that live on. I think so, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if I can put hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these girls in Jaipur region in India through school. That'll be very meaningful. If we can make a genetic breakthrough in CRISPR that we're trying to do at Sick Kids, with we have the president of Sick Kids, Ron Cohen. We're very, very excited about that. And uh, we started something called Venture Philanthropy, where we invest in the hospitals, but if they make a breakthrough, our foundation gets back money, so my foundation can give away more money. You see it outside of BC? Yes. Just a way, yeah, so it's working. We did a big write-up in the Financial Post about it, and we're pushing people to start acting like a bit more like Dragon's Den in the philanthropy world. But I love that. But think, think, yeah, things are more meaningful when you can do some real good and you can change some lives. And, you know, I will say one thing I've learned, though, in philanthropy, it is much harder to give away money than you think. It is very hard to give away money. Really? Because... Yeah, it's very hard to give away money if you want the other side to be accountable. So Mm -hmm. I believe in running the other side like a business. I want you to be accountable to the result. We'll give you the money, but we want the result. Yes. And I demand the result. And uh, I feel like that's appropriate. It's our money. And like, for example, last year, we put in a certain amount of money for these women to get jobs. It was something like 27% of women who showed up got jobs out of this. That number blew my mind. We Mm -hmm. doubled the amount. So we're doubling the amount of women because they got the result, right, that I wanted. Mm-hmm. So these kind of things become more meaningful as you exit your companies and like you want to do something in life, right? At least I find it incredibly meaningful. Do you look for meaning with the companies that you're investing in? I look for great entrepreneurs that I can partner with mm-hmm. that I want to be around for at least 10 years. I don't invest in companies that I couldn't be around for for 10 years, mm-hmm. right? I also don't buy real estate that I wouldn't keep a minimum of five years. You know, those kind of things like... So I invest in people, early stage companies, like for example, and you see it in the press, I invested in a great young entrepreneur in a company called Second Closet that's doing a lot of storage in Toronto. You've probably okay. seen them, maybe the yellow subway signs. You've probably okay, seen yeah. them. And I just love this young guy and he's done brilliantly. And uh, I'm in this relationship has been exactly what I wanted. I mean, everybody will tell you that investing in companies is all about the founders and how you get along with them and do they listen and can you build that relationship? It's mm-hmm. all about that. Mm-hmm. It's really not about much else. It's all about people because everybody's going to pivot their company. You just don't know, you know, you just don't know like which way, but you know that they'll do it. Mm-hmm. How do people find you? Like, how do you find these people that you invest in? Well, I'm part of the Creative Destruction Lab at UFT, so I do see them there. I'm also on this pretty 
big podcast in the United States that Spotify owns now uh, called yes. The Pitch. Yes, The I Pitch out of New York. And it's really popular. So people reach out to me daily on that. I don't do many deals there because they're so early. But okay. I have fun, you know, being my cantankerous self. I think they call me <laughs> crusty Canadian or something. So I start yelling <laughs> at people. Since I've never had a boss, I just kind of just say what I want to say. It's kind of funny, you know. But, and are you predominantly tech focused? No, I'll do a whole bunch of things. I'm looking at food deals. I look at everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the thing about tech is that I know it so well and you can make so much money. So it's ultimately leveraged because you're selling electrons right at the end of the day. Yeah. So it's so scalable and it's so highly valued. It's very hard to beat tech. Rarely have I, I'm looking at a food business right now that I think is great, but almost on the maybe an insurance business, but really it's very hard to beat tech. <laughs> yeah, and I think that probably every company can now change to incorporate it at some point. Change to a tech company? Incorporate tech in some oh, way. Oh, incorporate tech for yeah. sure. But just because they use tech, I could make them tech enabled. Like Second Closet mm-hmm. isn't a tech company, but it's a tech enabled storage company. And that's why their margins are better and they're highly efficient. Mm-hmm. So I believe that they're the future. Of How are they tech enabled? So they do a lot of AI around the delivery. So for example, if they're doing massive amounts of deliveries and pickups in Toronto, as an example, and they do, they have an incredibly advanced AI system that's doing all the logistics and loading that makes them like way more efficient than other hmm. companies. That's fantastic. Yeah. And it's a young entrepreneur from Toronto? Yeah. Mark Ang's about 24 years old. I, wow. I he's, <laughs> he's my son. Look, I, I'd like a son. It'd be him. He's pretty good. It's a way better version of me. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, good looking kid too it's really annoying oh, that's <laughs> I shouldn't call him a kid either because he'll get upset but he's just such a nice young man he's just he's such a nice young man it's funny I know to think back to people that are 20 now and see all the things that they're doing and it's like you're a child <laughs> yeah I know I know when I see people that are born with a zero and then O's or something it really drives me nuts when they're teens or I, know. They born. I didn't even think people were born in 96 like what are you talking about what rubbish. Uh, Anyways. So if there was a new entrepreneur, what would be your biggest tip that you would give them? You know, they're getting started. What do you tell them? I think that the likelihood is you're very inexperienced and you should be. So try to find someone that can help you with experience. Like try to find way smarter and better people to surround yourself with. A lot of people have too many advisors, by the way. Too many people have like nine advisors. It's like, look, I know so many, I see people with bank, VPs, everything as advisors. Just try to choose one, maybe two people and just focus on getting one thing done well. Focus, really understand solving a problem. Most people that have great businesses solve a problem that they see or they experienced. So a lot of people though try to build companies by building tech and then they run around the room trying to find the problem. Really you should have a problem that you're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. Love that. So where can people find more information about you? You know, there's not a ton of information about me. You get to hear me yammer on on the pitch and probably if you go to the Creative Destruction Lab, but typically I've kept a lower profile. I do the CBC when I'm back in Canada every weekend or so, just do the broad-based news when I'm back in on April there. But typically if people on business just reach out to me on LinkedIn, I'm not that active on Twitter. I'm on it. I just kind of stopped using Facebook. You can probably find me on uh, Instagram, but I don't really put much up there either. I don't, I don't post my Stealth. life. I don't do it because I don't want to live on social media and tell people about my life all the time. I just like privacy and I just don't feel like I want to like take every picture of every dinner. And, and when I stop, people think it's weird. 
Like for instance, I've never put a picture of my daughter up and I never will. I, I don't feel I have the right to. She can choose a social media profile and Hmm. when she's 32 years old, you know. I was thinking about the, the, the other problem. day, yeah, when I saw I saw somebody and their daughter has 200,000 followers or something like that and mm-hmm. all these photos of her and I, I was thinking, you know, what about when she gets older? I just don't feel I have the right to create a footprint digitally for uh, Sophia. I feel like she will get to do that when she wants to and I just don't share her online and I'm not going to and I don't feel I should. I just feel it's some people really want to show everybody that they know baby pictures. The problem with my LinkedIn and my Facebook, it's like thousands and thousands of people I don't know. And I just don't mm-hmm. want to share my daughter with all these people. And so I'm on like a private chat with my family on WhatsApp, right? And I just share pictures of her. And Emily, after this, I'll send you a picture. But I just feel like I think we overdo it. I think we overshare, right? Oh, I'm the same. I do not like to share personal things. I try to keep it all... Social media is for business and it's always sort of been that way. The personal things I share are minimal. Yeah, right. I think some things yeah, yeah need to be sacred. I do like uh, Garrison Best Spoke. They make my suits. So every once in a while, I fire a picture off of my new suit okay. that I just got for them. I know I Michael. Like those guys. Yeah. yeah, Michael's just wonderful. And he's, I think, the most talented suit guy in the country, maybe in America too. I just, he's so talented. Mm-hmm. He's just an artist. He's not a suit guy. He's an artist, right? And he does, I think, Drake, the MLSC, like the TV show Suits. That's him. Like I, here I'm giving an ad for him. I just love the guy. So. I love his <laughs> he stuff. He lived too, at the Ritz so. for a while. That's, I met him he there. He did. He did. Yeah. yeah I think he's still there. Sweetheart. But yeah. yeah, he is. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, it's my pleasure. And keep doing what you're doing. And I hope to drop by one of your events. So. I love that. 